I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. The ghost of Hemingway has haunted and inspired at least three generations of writers. Mark Kurlansky is no exception, and his detailed self-deprecating account of the presence of that ghost is as brilliantly revealing of Hemingway as it is of Kurlansky himself. He knows his Hemingway, the life and the works, and he knows his Kurlansky, and he's bitingly honest about both writers. Kurlansky, however, comes off as a hell of a lot more likable. That's Russell Banks on Mark Kurlansky's new book, The Importance of Not Being Earnest. Mark, the author of Cod, Salt, and 33 other books, is my guest on this episode of The Literary Life. This conversation was recorded during a virtual Books and Books event that took place earlier this month. And now I have to thank Mark for all of his incredible support that he's given all these years to independent bookstores and to us in particular, since uh, I want to be extremely um, transparent and let people out there know that Mark and I have known each other for close to 40 years, if not over 40 years. This is this is our 40th anniversary of the bookstore. And I think Mark was the very first customer ever walked in, right? And I can actually say that I knew Mark uh, before he ever published a book. And with the importance of not being earnest, this is Mark Kurlansky's 35th book. And Mark, I can actually tell you when I first met you, I never would have imagined that you'd be a, the, the author of 35 books. Welcome. Welcome to you, Mitchell, and to uh, all the independent bookstores who have always been my lifeblood. I, I'm just so appreciative of all of you. And, you know, while I'm doing thank yous, I mean, Mitchell, you know, I kicked around this book idea for years, and you were the one who, you know, really pushed me to, to, to get it done. And, uh, and also thanks to Mango, who did such a beautiful job uh, with my watercolors and everything. They really did. This, this, I'll show you, we'll be talking about this as we go further, but the cover of the book is one of Mark's watercolors and, and peppered throughout the book are a series of watercolors. We'll talk about what that means to Mark and how uh, in his travels, water, you know, being a painter of watercolors uh, is something that he pursues. But I want to talk to you a little bit about what you just said, which is You've been kicking this idea around for this book for a lot of years. And uh, for those of you who haven't read it yet, you're in for a huge treat because I don't think there's quite a book like it. So Mark, why don't you describe it a little bit and talk about how this idea came to be? Yeah, well, I, um, <laughs> it all came about while fly fishing, oddly enough. And 
You know, the thing about fly fishing is that I, probably the reason I'm a writer is that I just have a dialogue that's going on in my head all the time and it never stops. And the great thing about fly fishing is when I'm fly fishing, it stops. I'm thinking about insect catches and, 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 and pools and trying to think like a trout. And I fish for beautiful rainbow trout in a river called the Big Wood, tributary of the Columbia that runs through Ketchum, Idaho. And about 10 years ago, I was fishing in the Big Wood. And suddenly, you know, one of those thoughts that's not supposed to come to you while you're fishing uh, came to me that I was approaching the bank where Hemingway stood and blew his head off. And I, um, the first thing I thought, which was extraordinary, is I realized that I was older than he ever lived to be. Now, this is a little disturbing because in the town of Ketchum, I mean, you know, to not think about Hemingway in Ketchum would be like going to Sherwood Forest and Robin Hood never coming up, you know. Uh, everywhere, these pictures of this old guy, you know, sort of hunched over and uh, calls himself Papa, and he looks ancient. He was younger than me. <laughs> so that was a little disturbing. But then there was something liberating about it. I, I thought, you know, I'm on to new chapters in my life because it just seems that, you know, Hemingway is always there. Um, I'll give you a recent example. I was walking down the street in my neighborhood in Manhattan last weekend. The doorman, apropos of nothing, shouted out, hey, hey you look like Hemingway. <laughs> I mean, who asked him? But, you know, Hemingway just has always been there for one reason or another. I was in Idaho the day that Hemingway killed himself. Got in an argument with my father because my father said it was suicide. The newspaper said it was an accident. I'd like the accident version. Um, well, let's stop, let's stop right there for one sec. So I, I want to go because, you know, anyone tuning in understands the resemblance. But beyond the physical resemblance, what you point out so clearly in the book and what's so unusual is that from a very, very young age, you always wanted to write. You knew that writing was something for you to be doing. Uh, in fact, you have this great line in the book, uh, <laughs> which says, has to do with a writer, but also that you're daydreaming. You say uh, that, you know, I used to daydream a lot. People used to always say, Mark is a daydreamer. And then you actually own up to it and say, I was in an alternate universe most of the time. Right. So yeah. Still am, I think. <laughs> exactly. So but that alternate universe took you into the universe of books and writing from a really young age. I mean, you were not even 10 when right. you started thinking about writing. Right. It's all I wanted to do. I always wanted to be a writer. And yeah. him. And so talk about even as a 10 year old or younger, what your relationship to Hemingway was then. Well, Hemingway was the most famous writer. And, you know, it's in Life Magazine and everything. Everyone was in Spain, everyone was bullfighting, everyone was killing animals. I don't know what he was doing, but, you know, it, you always thought about Hemingway. And, 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 and I, I thought that, you know, this was a writer's life, which is why I got upset when my father said he killed himself, because how could the man living the ideal writer's life want to end it? Well, we could get in, um, but uh, so it wasn't as if you were fly fishing and then you thought back on your remembrance of Hemingway. Hemingway had always been in part, had always been a part of who you were as a writer, right? And for a series of coincidences, I spent most of my life in Hemingway places. I, mean, I lived in Paris for ten years. I've been writing about Bass for fifty years. I've been writing about Cuba for forty years. You know, I've been going to Idaho uh, for a long time fishing. Why do I go to Idaho? It has nothing to do with Hemingway. I started going to Idaho because Idaho has the largest, or one of the largest bass communities in North America. And the Basques invited me to go there. Nothing to do with Hemingway. Uh, most of the stuff had nothing to do with Hemingway. Hemingway was far from my thoughts when I first started going to Cuba, you know, revolutionary Cuban. I wanted to write about the revolution. I wasn't going there to write about Hemingway. But when I went there, it seemed like people just 
wanted to talk about Hemingway a lot. But what's cool, I think, is what you point out in the book, you know, even, even though you were young, just how central Hemingway was in the 50s, right? He was, if you were a writer, if, you know, you were, you know, Hemingway was, you know, basically someone you wanted to emulate, I imagine. Um, at the same time, you read Hemingway. You have this great story about how when you went off to school for the first time, you you picked out a Hemingway novel and all you, you know, talk about that a little bit. Farewell to Arms. Um, he remembers that Scribner's paperback edition that has the wood grain, the gray wood grain cover. And, uh, you know, my parents, typical thing parents always say, you know, they say, because you had a, a free day before classes began. And, uh, you know, and so I had my own room. I had a room to myself, which I had never in my life, I'm a twin. I've never in my life had a room to myself. So that was pretty exciting. And, and my parents said, go out and make friends. I said, yeah, yeah, okay. I go, they left. Bye, mom. Bye, dad. Oh, what's this Hemingway book here? I sat down. I spent the entire day reading A Farewell to Arms. <laughs> I finished it by dinner time. Uh, and I don't know that I've ever been more moved by a book in my life. Yeah, so, so basically, I just wanted to establish that this Hemingway, you know, you call him an uninvited, the uninvited Hemingway. And it is, it's not as, it's not something that you manufactured. It was kind of very natural in your life that Hemingway was a part of it from about as early as you could possibly imagine as a writer and a reader. And it's not as if you tried to emulate him at all. In fact, you say that maybe the only city that Hemingway was responsible for you going to was Paris, right? Yeah, because, you know, after Hemingway died, uh, during the 60s, it was like he got resurrected. Uh, the Carlos Baker book came out, A. Hotchner's book came out, and um, posthumously, um, Movable Feast came out. Right. Movable Feast was enormously popular, and everybody was talking about you know, Hemingway in Paris, and Gertrude Stein, and Scott Herald, and all of this stuff, and, and so that there was this very popular notion that uh, Paris was a place for writers to go. It really wasn't by the time I went there, but it was probably, you know, Hemingway was probably, or Movable Feast was probably in the back of my mind when I made a decision to go there. I mean, I, I had been there a couple of times and it looked like a nice place to be. <laughs> well, what I, what I think is really cool, what, you, what you've done so successfully here is that you talk about these places. It's kind of a duel. It's an autobiography and a kind of very, um, you know, episodic and impressionistic uh, biography of Hemingway as well. We all know there are millions, millions and millions of books on Hemingway. But I think what you did here by, by juxtaposing your life in these places with what Hemingway's life was like, um, it yes. gives you a kind of before and after sensibility as well. Right. I mean, when Hem Hemingway went to Paris, and all these Americans went to Paris, because Paris was incredibly cheap. The dollar was very strong against the franc, and it cost almost nothing to live in Paris. Uh, when I went to Paris, it was the reverse. Paris was very expensive. The dollar was weak. The franc was very strong. And... You know, there were a few, still a few little old-fashioned, inexpensive places. There was this wonderful woman, Maria Cadina, who was from Barcelona. And she had a restaurant where she served um, paellas for five francs. And she was, uh, she was an old Republicano, uh, you know, a socialist. And, and this was her, her ideal. She said, there's a lot of people who can't afford more than five francs. Uh, you know, so there were a few of those wonderful places left. Not many, none now. Um, but it, it was it, it was such a different life, and there were all these people there. There were all these Americans um, who uh, kind of wanted to be Hemingway. They wanted to be writers, and Hemingway was their image. And um, now you were there in the late '60s, early '70s, right? 
and, and um, you know, they, they, they hung out in the bookstore and they talked about Hemingway. Everybody went to all of the Hemingway sites. Now in those days, Hemingway sites weren't marked. They didn't have plaques on them. You know. So I um, and my wife uh, settled into a room in an inexpensive hotel in the fifth of London Small. Because when we had been there as tourists, we had spent a lot of time in the fifth. So it was a neighborhood that we knew. So we, we settled into this thing and through the Carlos Baker book, I soon realized that Hemingway's first apartment was around the corner from where I was living. And I mean, this is sort of typical of my life, which meant that all of the neighborhood places I went to were places that Hemingway went to and wrote about. And it seems like the whole time I, I lived in Paris, I could never discover anything that I couldn't have found by reading Hemingway. <laughs> well, paint a little picture of what Hemingway's Paris was like. I mean, so many of us have read about it, but what, what are some of the more unusual things that you bring out in your book? Well, Hemingway uh, moved to Paris at a time when Paris, because it was so inexpensive, was becoming the center of an art movement, modernism. Modernism in painting and music and writing. And Hemingway and Joyce and you know, all of these writers who were in Paris were out to change writing. And they did. Um, it, it was, I mean, I write differently. We all write differently because of modernism. Um, and Hemingway, although he was a commercially very successful, successful writer, was an avant-garde experimental modernist and trying to do, as his friend Ezra Pound used to say, make it new. Um, so artistically, it was a very exciting place. Well, there was Joyce. Joyce was there. Pound, Elliot, um, all of these expats, you know, post-World War I came. And Gertrude Stein ran these salons. Recreating literature and painting and music. And, right. Um, there was nothing new being created when I was in Paris, these American writers who were there, rather than trying to make it new, were trying to make it old. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's when I first started to become very wary of the idea of being Hemingway, of wanting to be Hemingway. Because uh, I, I didn't want to be these people who, by and large, I didn't think were ever going to be published. <laughs> well, isn't that the problem with nostalgia, right? I mean, it was basically a nostalgic looking back you know i remember when i read a movable feast i was my i was a little bit i was in the mine was in the late 70s and the and you know i decided to go to paris i used it as a travel guide basically <laughs> not being a writer for me it was trying to go to these places that he went to in order to try to capture some of that cafe life of the 20s that appealed to me so well right but you know you couldn't capture it because it it wasn't the movement wasn't there anymore there was no, no no i mean can you imagine you know when james joyce came out with ulysses which you know nobody wanted to publish because it was the effort and a few others <laughs> um and so sylvia beach in the bookstore published it and it's like you you know <laughs> uh she published this, this small edition of this book that completely changed literature, that is so revolutionary that even when you read it today, it seems revolutionary. Yeah, well, I mean, it, there was a literary world that didn't exist when you or, or, or when I went as well. But I, I think, you know, what I got out of it was this kind of romantic view of what a cafe life was like which was very different than what my growing up in Miami Beach was like. So for me, it was a kind of nostalgic, you know, uh, thing, which, which actually influenced me in only in the sense of the idea of having a literary community, even though it wasn't there when I was there, you know, of trying to create that same kind of thing. Well, I have to say that it was different from uh, Hartford, Connecticut, which is where I grew up. <laughs> it was <laughs> And that's a good thing. <laughs> but I think the difference too, and, and you know, being a writer, 
uh, you were having constantly, because you were also, at the time you were in Paris, I believe, you were also writing fiction, right? You were, you were trying to write fiction and you had made the, you made the choice to begin to be a journalist, right? You said, I'm going to be a journalist at that point. And, and it was hardly a commercial decision, you know, it was a way of earning money. But I also thought it'd be an interesting thing to do, not forever, but, you know, the wonderful thing about being a journalist is that you get to go to all sorts of places, meet all sorts of people that you would never meet, enter worlds that you would normally never be allowed into. Uh, so it, it was a great experience. Not well, a good guys in writing, however. <laughs> no, but that also, you create the link with Hemingway, who also wrote journalism, right, for the Toronto Star and other things. Yeah. In, in fact, it's kind of funny that in one case, we worked on the, the same story, except that his was the 1924 version. Oh, tell that story. Which one was that? It was an, an interview with the Royalist Party, with the uh, uh, Henri Comte de Paris, who was the pretender to the French throne. And uh, Hemingway interviewed him and wrote about the Royalist Party um, in, in, from a 20s perspective. Uh, then other things went on in France, you know, and the Royalist Party became totally Nazi. <laughs> and Henri Comte de Paris was a Nazi collaborator. And um, I, I didn't do this story, by the way, because Hemingway had done it. I'd done the story because I was kind of curious about this guy. And this was the first interview I ever did in French. And when you're, when you're interviewing in another language that you haven't interviewed in before, and they're saying strange things, you always wonder, am I hearing this right? For example, the prince said to me that he had to side with the Nazis because the British had killed the, he said, the flower of French aristocracy in the Battle of Kemper in 16-something or other. And I'm writing this in my notebook. Am I, am I hearing this right? <laughs> Is this really what he's saying? What you discovered while you were in Paris, too, which I found really interesting, was a direct line to what you then began to do as an author, right? So you discovered, I believe it was in Paris, right, where you discovered the writers who were writing about food. Was it in Paris? Yes. Well, in Paris, but in Spain and in Italy, in Europe. In Europe, you just while you were there, you saw these people writing about how food, what food meant to the various cultures uh, that they were writing about. Historically, and, and um, uh, Americans didn't do that. Uh, I also worked for the International Herald Tribune, and there was a guy writing for the Tribune, named Waverly Root, who had a food column, who also interestingly, just another curious coincidence was a retired Chicago newspaper writer, uh, which I later became. Um, and, you know, so I, I started to get, Root wrote these wonderful articles with a great sense of humor, not always strictly correct, but great uh, reads. And it was a great way to approach food. And I thought Americans should approach food this way. And I started writing about it then. Or the connection you make with Hemingway in the book is you point out that really the kind of journalism that Hemingway wrote was more in the vein of what we would call either new journalism or literary nonfiction, really. So he kind of he started literary nonfiction in a lot of ways. And you say so many great things about his about the leads that he would write. Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing that the particular way that Hemingway wrote is often attributed to his newspaper experience. We call it cavalese, and you had to pay so much for each word, so you, 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 you wrote very succinctly in few words. And all this stuff, I don't think is true at all. I think Hemingway wrote the way he wrote because it's the whole idea of modernism. Modernism, you strip things down. You, you, you know, Ezra Pound used to go through his, his copies and take this out, take this out, take this out. Don't use adjectives. 
<laughs> Ezra Pound was totally against the use of adjectives. Um, and so he, he developed this, this style of, of, of modernist, modernist writing. Um, his short stories, which are my favorite Hemingway. I love his short stories. I love short stories in general. I love to read them and I love to write them. I've, I've published three books of short stories, three collections of short stories. It's my favorite kind of writing um, because it's pure storytelling. And what you notice when you look at, pick up a book, a collection of Hemingway short stories, and just read the first line of each story. They're all great. He always wrote a great opening line, which, you know, is kind of a newspaper thing. Because, you know, when you're reporting for a newspaper, the lead is everything. I always felt like, you know, you had to get back to the hotel on time to file the story. And then I'm driving back to the hotel. I'm going, what's the lead? What's the lead? Because if you had the lead, you had the whole story. Hemingway wrote great leads. But, but you point out that if it wasn't Hemingway and if it was someone else writing some of the leads that he wrote, an editor might just spike that lead, right? Because he tended, he tended not to have that modernist tradition in some of the journalism that he wrote. No, is it journalism? I don't know. I can't imagine an editor. If I wrote Hemingway's newspaper copy, nobody would have published it. No editor I ever worked right. with. Um, and, you know, one of the curious things about Hemingway is that his fiction is more honest and more factual than his journalism. If you look at something like the Spanish Civil War, you know, the Spanish Civil War uh, just piles and piles of journalists, you know, competing. And Hemingway had the best sources because he was a celebrity. And he had all of these great sources. Most of them were communists. And uh, he didn't write anything that made them look bad, uh, which made him some enemies in the, in, in the press because they did some bad things. Um, Hemingway didn't touch it because it would mess up his sources. But if you read For Whom the Bell Tolls, it's all in there. He talks about all of the atrocities of the Republic and as, as well as the fascists. It's very balanced. It's, it's, his fiction is good, balanced, fair-minded journalism, whereas his journalism is very prejudiced. The, the book has actually uh, got these chapters of Paris, Spain, um, Cuba, and Ketchum, and New York as well. So now we go from Hemingway being in Paris, Hemingway being in Spain, and you being in Spain as well. So talk about talk about both of those. The curious thing about Spain is that of all these places, Spain was the only one where I went to the same place that Hemingway left. I mean, because like we talked about how Paris was no longer the same. You know, I, I went to revolutionary Cuba. Hemingway left at the time of the revolution. We knew completely different Cubas. But Spain was the Spain that Hemingway knew. It was a fascist country. Yeah, Franco lived so long that it maintained, right. he maintained his grip on the country. Nazi salutes. And yes. It was people, you'd, you'd go to interview somebody in their office and they'd have an iron cross from Hitler proudly displayed. And it was, you felt like you stepped into a time warp, but it wasn't a time warp, it was just in Spain and <laughs> not changed. So what, what brought you to Spain? What brought you there? Well, originally, I think what brought me there was what Hemingway, what brought Hemingway there. That if you live in Paris, Spain is like a really cheap place to go. It doesn't cost much to get there. And it didn't, you know, it was in, in, in Franco. Oh, oh, we live so well under fascism. <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, for a few dollars, you could get this incredible meal. Mm -hmm. It was... Um, I, I always used to say, I used to tell friends in Paris when they come back from trips to Spain, they say, how was it? I said, it was like being rich. You know, <laughs> it's like you see what it's like to be a rich person. Um, but it was also, you know, strange and kind of horrifying. And, uh, well, you write about a very horrifying experience that happened to you and your wife. Yeah, um, Guardia Civil just dragged us into an alley. And, you know, you realize they could do whatever they wanted. 
Well, and and so that that is another sort of parallel. But you, but then, but then you also, you know, your experience there led to a deep fascination with Basque country, right? I yeah. mean, we all know that we all know the books that you've written about that. And well, this, this is what happened. <laughs> uh, I, I went back to the U.S. and I visited uh, every major paper that didn't have a correspondent in Spain, which is most, uh, including the Miami Herald. And I, I said, you know, here it is, the last 1930s European fascist state, and uh, waiting to be overthrown. And nobody's covering it. And I'm, at times, I'm really a good salesman. Oversold this one. Hell <laughs> bought into it. I go to Spain and nothing's happening. Oh. Everyone's just waiting for him to die. Uh, but the Basques um, assassinated uh, Admiral Carrera Blanca, Franco's chosen successor. And so, because of the Basques, uh, Franco had no successor. Um, and I thought, oh, well, I guess maybe there's something going on in Basque country. So I, I, I went up there and there was little stuff going on, the defacing statues. I mean, you gotta understand in Spain, nothing moved. You know, no, people weren't protesting, they weren't defacing things, they weren't writing graffiti. You, you, you didn't speak the Basque language or you'd be arrested. It was, it was tight lit on everything. And they were starting to uh, deface statues and little things were going on. Um, also, it struck me as one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen on earth. And this ancient culture that I really didn't get to know until after Franco, because it wasn't allowed. Um, but you know, the way the Basque have preserved, I mean, the reason the Basque language isn't like any other language, it's not that it was a totally original language, it's that none of the other cultures in that family of languages have survived. This is a language from before the Indo-European invasion of Europe. Um, uh, so yeah, I, be, I became fascinated with Basque and I love Basque. Country. And that was, that was in the 70s, right? That was pretty much still in the 70s. Yeah, it, did lead, it did lead to another, you know, you talk about Franco coming to power with Hemingway being in Spain. And it led to you being there when Franco gave what? His last speech, right? Yeah. You want me to read that? Go ahead. I'd love you to read that. That would be fantastic. Uh, this is a strange thing that in, in 1975, I got to witness the final death knell of 1930s European fascism. On October 1st, 1975, I was told that Franco would appear in the Plaza de Oriente, an oval-shaped plaza with many small streets leading into it. The crowd gathered with a kind of energy that seemed to suck in everyone from surrounding streets, like water pulled into a drain. Overhead, a small plane was putt-putting, trailing a yellow and red banner that said, Arriba Pana, which is the Flanders um, model. And the crowd, snapped their arms at 45 degree angles, repeatedly thrusting out the fascist salute while shouting, Franco, Franco, Franco. A weazened, shaky little figure, balding to almost hairlessness, gingerly stepped out on the balcony. Hitler would have looked like this too had he lived this long. It was the portrait of Dorian Gray, at last revealing all the sins, all the evil, all the stick all this decrepit, on this decrepit face. His voice was so weak that I could not hear what he said above the shouting. He acknowledged the crowd and I'm not sure if he said anything. I wanted to ask someone, but everyone around me was so consumed with the straight arm Zig Heil like ecstasy shouting Franco, 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 that I couldn't talk to anyone. With an aide's help, he staggered back behind a curtain and was never seen again. At last, Spain had ended its 1930s, hmm. 1975. It's really, it was chilling when I read that, knowing that you were there and, uh, and all of the aftermath. Um, so from Spain, you then 
decided that you were going to cover uh, another part of the world and you began to cover the Caribbean, right? Yes. Well, actually, uh, first Mexico. I moved to Mexico. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, the Chicago Tribune had an opening for some reason for the Caribbean. Uh, and that's when I moved to Miami and found this little bookstore. <laughs> so talk about that period and the period that brought you to Cuba and what what you found there and and the the fascination with Hemingway in Cuba, obviously. Yeah, well, I, I went to Cuba. Uh, originally, I went to Cuba from Mexico. Uh, the uh, Cuban uh, ambassador invited uh, the foreign press in Mexico to come to uh, Cuba. And um, some CIA guy at the American embassy said we weren't allowed to go, which, of course, wasn't true because journalists could go. But it made the trip so much better just knowing that the CIA was trying to stop us. <laughs> They didn't really do anything to stop us. It just felt good. And, uh, um, and of course, I wanted to write about what Cuba was like now in the revolution. And uh, it was a fascinating time. Uh, the Soviet Union was bankrolling the socialist experiment. You know, and they were doing everything differently. Weddings were different. Marriage vows were different. Um, the whole way. Medicine and education was pursued, and uh, just trying to create a completely new uh, society, um, which they could do because although it was not economically successful, the Soviets just kept putting money into it. Um, and uh, so that's basically what I was writing about in Cuba, but I was not there very long before somebody said, want to see Hemingway's house? <laughs> um, so how did Hemingway find his way to Cuba? We know that he also found his way to Key West as well. How did that, how did that nexus get created for Hemingway? Well, he was in Key West uh, uh, fishing uh, the Gulf Stream, the Florida Straits. Uh, and one end of it was Key West, and then there was Bimini in the Bahamas, and the other, at the other end was Havana. Um, the Gulf Stream goes right by Havana. And um, uh, he basically moved there for fishing. He, he wanted to leave Key West because his home, as it is today, was on the tourist map. It was when he lived there. Everybody who visited Key West went, went to go look at Hemingway's home and, oh, look, there he is. <laughs> he couldn't stand it, so he left. And he went to Cuba. Um, and he lived in Cuba longer than he lived anywhere else in his life. Um, but, you know, when I went to his house and, you know, eventually got, because you can't go in, but eventually through connections I was able to go in and you look around his house and there's almost nothing Cuban in it. It, it looks like, uh, there also isn't a lot that's passed. I found one I found this one leather case with the seals of the seven Basque provinces. It's the only Basque thing I found in the house and nobody could tell me how it got there. Um, but the house looked like, it looked like the house of an American living in Spain. Uh, and with a little bit of the fishing game office in Boise, Idaho thrown in. <laughs> you know, all these kills were on the walls and on the floor. Um, it really didn't have much to do with Cuba at all. Um, and he had a very fertile writing period there as well, right? Oh, well, as I say, it was the longest period in his life. He had fertile periods and infertile periods. Uh, uh, wrote some of his in, important books there. Um, you know, wrote, there's all these posthumous books which Scribner's leaks out a little at a time. And, you know, you read these books, people, people read these books and say, oh, well, I'm really lost them. These aren't very good. But, you know, he didn't finish them. They were unfinished works. And they were interesting. And you could see that he was trying. He wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't doing a copy of himself. He wasn't trying to do Hemingway books. He was trying to do new things. He was still trying to do new and innovative things. And while he was in Cuba, you point out 
that, you know, like in Key West, but differently, he became something of an idol to so many Cubans, right? Who were there, whether it's the bar that he hung out in uh, or when he would walk down the street, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the, the Florida bar, there was a certain spot where he always stood. And there's now a life-size bronze statue of him in this spot. And it's almost like they won't let him die. He's still there in the bar. Um, well, you told the story about what when you walk down the street. Yes. You know what? You know people are constantly going. You know, there's an American writer, so you must. You know, there. It's a it's a shout out for Hemingway, right? Right. I I, I just remember one day it was Father's Day, and and one of the things about how Cuba has a lot of American things, adopted a lot of American things. And one is that they celebrate Father's Day on the same day that we do. So it's Father's Day and I'm walking down the street and I'm sort of missing my daughter. And all these people are shouting out, hola, papa. And I'm thinking, oh, that's nice. They figured out that I'm a father. You know? and, then, and then I gradually realized that wasn't what was going on at all. They were saying, they were pretending I was Hemingway. And Hemingway walked down the street They'd go, hola, papa, and, and he'd wave at them, and having no idea who they were because he had terrible eyesight. And, and I somehow was cast into this role of Hemingway walking down the street. You say something really interesting. I mean, you know, the, the mythology around Hemingway everywhere in the world. Uh, you have a quote by Julian Barnes where he, he's talking about how there are all these like Hemingway lookalike contests, but he says, he says other countries don't, well, I forget the exact quote, but you know they, they don't have a Dickens lookalike or a <laughs> <laughs> lookalike or, or a Camus lookalike or any of that sort of stuff. No, it's true. The mythology of Hemingway is larger than life. But speaking of life, I mean, we now get to a point where you kind of diverge from Hemingway pretty significantly. I mean, Hemingway, you know, was you know when you look back, I mean, he had a really rough inner life, right? He was not the happiest guy in the world. Um, and you actually have a line that I love in your book, because I know it's true about you, where you say, I was not unhappy about not being unhappy, <laughs> right? And so there's where you diverge from Hemingway. You, you didn't need to lead that part of Hemingway's life. Yeah, by the time I got to Idaho, I mean, he was he was so, I mean, you just look at the pictures, he was miserable. He was in, he was in that. And, uh, uh, and a lot of it had to do, you know, we, we underestimate, or maybe we don't, but people write about, you know, the effect of war on Hemingway. You know, Hemingway, you know, from one war to the next, from one altercation to the next. You have another great quote where you say, Hemingway went to war instead of college. I went to college instead of war, yeah. right? And that has to do with the fact that you could have ended up at war, but you needed that student deferment, right? Right, right. And I hated the war in Vietnam, and I was, I was absolutely against it. And, the, you know, there was a moment that the Hemingway influence again, you know, where I thought, gee, you know, as a writer, I would get great material if I went to Vietnam. And then I thought, wait, I'm going to go somewhere and kill a bunch of poor villagers because it'll get me good material. <laughs> that, that didn't, right. I mean, he, he, in World War I, he went to the front uh, on a bicycle distributing chocolate bars. Right, and that's where he got blown up. In fact. And he was hit with a trench mortar. Um, in, in the Spanish Civil War and World War II, he was supposed to be a journalist. He wasn't supposed to be in combat at all. He kind of played around with it, it's not clear. Probably not as much as he claimed he did. At one point during World War II, the other journalists um, had him called in because you know when you're, a, when you're when you're a correspondent, you don't want a correspondent who's going around um, the gun participating in the war. Because you're going around saying, don't shoot me, I'm not a combatant. <laughs> right. So. Uh, they got pretty upset with Hemingway, and you know he was called in to explain himself. And 
he denied using weapons and he denied all the stories that he told. And, you know, we don't know what was true and what wasn't. Uh, his, his role in the liberation of Paris is, is probably a complete lie. I am absolutely certain that he did not liberate the Hotel Ritz. I mean, it's a known fact there were no Germans at the Hotel Ritz when he got there. When you think about it, you think about it, the Germans are losing the war. They're on the run. The Allies have just taken over Paris. And the Germans are sitting around in the Hotel Ritz. What is that? Right. Exactly. <laughs> So point out to me, um, or, or paint the picture if you can, of, of what drew him to Ketchum, what his life was like in Ketchum, and then, you know, you, it's, a, it's a very devastating portrait of what happened to him at the end as well. Yeah, he, um, well, he was invited to Ketchum. Uh, you've been to the Sun Valley, and you know, they have all these pictures of celebrities on the wall and what these pictures are, are paying their dues. They invited all these movie stars and celebrities to come to Sun Valley and, you know, they fix them up with whatever they want. Oh, you want to go hunting or whatever. And all they had to do in exchange was pose for pictures. Um, and that's how, that's how Hemingway first got to uh, uh, catching. Uh, later on, he stopped living in in Sun Valley and uh, rented places and eventually uh, bought a house, um, to my way of thinking, the least attractive of the Hemingway houses. Um, and, a, and a kind of a sad place. Very touching scenes you have, you know, about Hemingway living there with, you, you have one scene in which, you know, you, you point out that he, 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 Hemingway didn't really speak that much in public, right? He didn't give a lot of talks and he gave the eulogy at, at somebody's funeral and, you know, he seemed to have fit into that life really well, but at the same time, he was undergoing shock shock therapy, right? Uh, Towards the end, uh, he was getting shock therapy <clears throat> and the thing about shock therapy is that you start to lose your memory. Well, for a writer, any writer, to lose your memory, that's it, you can't write, you're finished. And for Hemingway in particular, because Hemingway had a spectacular memory and he lived off it. He never took notes, uh, which means he probably got some things wrong. <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, he just had this great memory and that's what he wrote from. So, so now how did, <laughs> it's, a, it's a stretch, but talk about your connection to Ketchum, which was distinct from Hemingway's, right? Totally distinct. I mean, um, as I said, there's a huge Basque community in Idaho. And uh, every fall, the sheep, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sheep racing there. And uh, a lot of the sheep racers are Basque. And every fall, they move the sheep from the, uh, High, high pastures down to the lower pastures for winter. In a, in a, and they have a celebration. They drive the sheep through the main street of Ketchum, which you know, kind of takes a toll on the main street. But, uh, and it's, it's, it's a tradition. And in, in Idaho, they brought in Scots to herd the sheep. And then when Scots didn't want to do it anymore, they brought in Basques. And now they have Peruvians do it. So they have this festival that one year celebrates Scots, one year Basque, and one year Peruvians. So on the Basque year, they invited me to come and give a speech and talk about Basques. And, um, and, and I really liked the place. And we really liked the place. Um, How did you end up there, though, on the day that Hemingway died? How did that happen? Oh, because when I was a kid, every summer, my... Um, my father was a dentist. <laughs> I know that's a little sensitive for you today. <laughs> um, so he could take off time when he wanted to. And every summer he took off about six weeks. And we packed in this huge Buick. Remember, in those days, uh, cars had sat three in the front and three in the back. We were a family of six. And we'd just spend the summer traveling out west. And we just happened to be in Idaho when he shot himself. Wow. Wow. Well, 
all of these threads uh, led to this spectacular book, The Important Ernest, My Life with the Uninvited Hemingway. I want to make sure that I point out to people who have not gotten the book yet that among the millions of different things that Mark is, does um, includes these incredible paintings. And uh, Mark, you can talk a little bit about, you know, watercolor and, you yeah. know, your travels. You know, Mark is a, Mark, talk about what a flaneur is and how, how that could describe you to some extent. I started a long time ago, many years ago. In my notebooks, I would start sketching people or things because I found that I never forgot anything once I drew it. There's, there's I um, Castle Rock. And uh, I, so I just sketches to remember things. And then after a while, forget about the words. Just <laughs> the words somewhere else. Yeah, there's a lunar eclipse of Upigal in Paris. Um, I, so whenever I traveled, I, I did watercolors wherever I went. And I now have, I think, 29 books of watercolors. So I think there's, I think there's 10 of them in there. Yeah, and there are 10 of them in the book. And the cover itself is one of Mark's watercolors as well, which is, which is really beautiful. Mark? You know, it's always great to see you. Uh, this has been, you know, just so wonderful to spend this time on Zoom. Next time it'll be in person. I hope that we'll get you down for the Miami Book Fair and that we can all meet and uh, and raise a glass of wine or something. And, uh, and I look forward to giving you a big bear hug when I see you next. Um, thank you, my friend. And thank you for all those 35 books that you've written. Thank you for selling. <laughs>